This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it, help spread the word, and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. There are so many stories within this new recording, Solus Satuna, by cellist Amit Pellet. We'll hear how he spent time alone and immersed himself in the music of Bach and replayed it as if he was a child again. Then he reunited with some of his students during the COVID pandemic, and they had a life-changing experience in Montana. And you'll also learn about his new instrument, That also helped make him feel whole during the pandemic. It all comes together on this new recording, Solus Setuna. you'll learn about this week on New Classical Tracks. I'm Julia Mucker. Well, where are you right now? Where is your home studio? Uh, well, I'm in Baltimore. That's my home as well as my studio and everything. Since pandemic, it's all in one house. So, yeah, I'm home in Baltimore. I did notice that your cello gang performed, was it last night in Virginia? Yeah. Tell yeah, me a little bit night, about yeah. that. What's that been like to get oh. to do these performances again? Because these are usually students of yours, right? Yeah, it's, well, it's always students of mine. And usually it's, uh, I, so we call it around the world in seven cellos. And uh, I usually use three current students and three former students. And uh, yesterday we came to the same spot that we've played quite a few times before. So the person who ran the, the concert came in and, and looked and said, oh, new faces. And I said, yes, that's my job. You know, I have to get new students all the time into the gang. And, and that's the whole point of it. So uh, I share that with the public as well. And uh, because they, some of the older students have performed with a, gang in that church a few times so they thought oh we're getting something we knew but uh, the whole point is to have fresh blood on the stage and to have new students yeah and so that's is that like a regular concert series that you're part of i'm not part of they just we, we just know each other for years so i i've come there and played with a gang myself with my orchestra <laughs> you name it so every every possibility that I that I have, but no, we have uh, toured in other places, and we went to Mexico and and uh, well, on the CD we can talk about that. But the extra track is of the cello gang, and it's a bubble that we did, like the NBA bubble. We did it in Montana during the pandemic, and that's a result of that um, cello bubble. <laughs> Well, I'm going to talk to you about that. Let's start off, though, by just talking about your new recording and the title of this recording, because it really reflects your musical journey during the COVID-19 pandemic. Would you tell us the title and then why it's so significant? 
Yeah, so uh, solus et una um, means alone and together. And that's basically my pandemic time. I was artistically at first alone and through the middle towards the end of it, I found ways to make music together with my students, with colleagues, but mainly with my students because during the alone time, I, I saw them and taught them through Zoom. And that was not so nice because, um, you know, the sound is not the same, the colors, um, it's the worst you can do to music, I feel, but, but it was important to get, uh, to keep the connection. Um, but the together part, when we found that bubble situation where we basically isolated ourselves as a group into, into the mountains in Montana, in a place where we could be without masks, no vaccination, nothing, just walk and, and make music the way we used to. That was a revelation and that was transformative for all of us, just the nature, the ability to make music together again. Um, and um, of course, this was an inspiration of the NBA bubble. So my love for basketball, again, showed me the light <laughs> in music and um, just watching the NBA bubble, the, all the playoff time, I, I thought, wow, what if I can create exactly the same for cello? It, it seems quite logical and easy. You just go to a place that is totally isolated. You have the food, you have everything you need. And instead of playing basketball, you play music. And that's what we did. <laughs> Tell me about your love of basketball. I don't know if we've talked about that. Tell me a little bit about, you know, the teams that you root for and what you love about well, it. Well, first of all, I'm a frustrated basketball player, period. And I used to play basketball and cello at the same time until end of high school. And I was quite good at basketball, but I was not tall enough. I was now I'm six five, but back then I wasn't yet 6'5", so I thought to myself, you know, I'll never make it anyway. And I had to make a decision one day because I had to practice a lot the cello. I had training all the time. I had games and I just couldn't do both. And my coach and my cello teacher actually met and they said, you know, let him decide. And I, I remember sitting in my room in Israel in my parents' house and I really thought about it. I said, well, you know, I'll never make it to the NBA, so let's stick to the cello. <laughs> and uh, my reason was that I will never be tall enough. Of course, now, now I am. But uh, that's sort of artificial. I, I, I would never stop the cello, to be honest. But I do love basketball. And now I have three kids and my two young boys, 15 and 12, they love it as much as I do. And we are big fans of the Wizards, but they're so bad. So now we, we, every evening we watch, you know, the playoffs and uh, of course, Minnesota has a good team now and we just enjoy watching the games and I take them with me on the road. Whenever we can catch a game, we go and we, we just love it. It's, it's such a beautiful game. And I also teach with a lot of basketball um, ideas and, and athletes ideas, sports. Um, so it's a big part of my life, I have to say. And um, of course, Inside me, I, I, I hope that one of my kids will carry the, the torch and will become a player. And now my older son is very good at it, but, um, you know, you never know. But I do hope, you know, if, it's, if you tell me lawyer, doctor, musician, or NBA player, I, I, I root for the NBA player. <laughs> tell me about some of the principles that you use in teaching that go right back to basketball. 
Well, in fact, I, I do outreach in colleges. And at one point I got to a division one basketball team and I talked to them about the connection one has with a pianist on stage, a connection that cannot be taught or cannot be used by words. It's a connection that is used by listening to each other and feeling each other. And the coach and the players explained to us the same idea they have about telepathy or connection, which they have because during a game, you can't hear each other. You can shout as much as you want. It's so noisy. You have to feel each other and understand where to be and what to do during defense or offense routes. And it's very similar to music. And they try to explain it to us by showing some drills. And we explain it to them by playing. And so in that sense, there's a lot of similarity of the performance aspect, where you're on stage or where you're on the game during the game, and you have to perform and you have to feel each other. But beside that, there's a huge part about the preparation, the stretches. You know, what we do, I call it the first hour, is when we do the scales and patterns and exercises. A lot of musicians neglect that part where you, you do the stretches, but the part that I love about NBA games is to get there two hours before when they open the arena, because I can see how Steph Curry warms up. And I see how they do their warm-up with the headphones and the, the rap music, and they're in their own zone and they do the stretches physically, they do the, the shooting. That's what is very similar. You stretch yourself, you get into the zone, and it's a daily routine that they do and we do, and we can learn a lot from each other. Then the use of the body, how your body and mind are connected. And I deal a lot with uh, kids, well, young 20, early 20s, when they get first tendonitis or get back pain for the first time. And they realize for the first time that the body is not young anymore and they have to know how to use it. Well, the first thing I tell them to do is go and watch LeBron James, go and watch Roger Federer playing tennis, go and watch all videos of Michael Jordan, because you see how they move, how they treat the body. And you see also what they do after games and before games. And so we are, you know, we are simply musical athletes. And I would never feel like it's so strongly if I wouldn't be at one point an athlete myself. <laughs> and the connection is just very strong and uh, stamina and endurance, all of those things that uh, you see in players that, uh, like Tom Brady, you know, 44 years old. I mean, how can he do that? Well, it's how he takes care of his body. So we, we can learn so much from it and it really shaped my, my teaching method, teaching philosophy. Um, I just had today a lesson with a student from China. And even to Shanghai, she's in lockdown. Um, I could explain to her through Zoom um, how to move the hand. You know, I explained to her how if you take your iPhone from the center of your body to the right side, your body is actually um, supporting your arm. You're, you're following it. And then when you move the bow, down bow, she's not moving at all. She's resisting it, actually. And it affects her sound. And I tried to explain to her through Zoom and through culture differences and all of that, that taking an iPhone from here to there and taking the bow from here to there, it's the same body movement. And she was like, oh my God, never heard that. And it's, 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 ba it's basics, but sports or movement of body um, uh, is related to what we do as musicians, what athletes are doing, what anybody is doing. I mean, giving a speech as a lawyer uh, in front of jury public speaking, pronunciation of words, 
uh, voice, uh, all of that stuff is, is all connected. Um, so my, you mentioned our concert yesterday as a cello gang. My students know that if they are in the cello gang, it's one point and it will be spontaneous. They will get the mic and they will have to speak to the audience. They will most likely have to say where they're from, why did they start playing the cello, what degree they are, and, and then they'll have to play something. And they always, they get so nervous, like, Mr. Pellet, when, when are you going to ask me to talk? What should I talk about? I said, I don't know, and I don't know. And when you get the mic, you will have to feel the audience, and you will have to talk to them. For, and the, the beautiful thing is that you see how the people who have done it before speaks very freely, but very clearly to the audience. They have an idea in their head. They transfer it beautifully through their mouth. And they play, you see how the mind is working and how they, they're doing it because they have experience. And that's, for me, a great joy as a teacher because I know that they're really ready to have the career that I want them to have. It's also interesting to me that you're using all these sports analogies because I have always believed musicians are athletes. I mean, if you watch somebody really performing and into it, it's like, wow, it's so physical. There's also a psychological component during a performance or an audition. And I know that there are teachers and schools of thought that use that kind of sports psychology to help students get through those auditions from an emotional standpoint. Is that something you do as well? Absolutely. I will take it even further. Uh, I didn't expect to talk about it, but the place where we stayed, the, the musical bubble we did in Montana, was in a place, a magical place called the Station Foundation. And I'm also only saying it because this foundation is a healing place for veterans of commando troops from the U.S. Army. And the place is set up for you know, Delta forces and all those people that have been in combat and they come back home and they cannot deal with making coffee, talking to their wives, taking their kids to school. However, they could function in such high intensity situations. And I didn't expect that to happen to us. But when we spend the bubble, the, all the crew that works there are veterans from those troops. And we found so many similarities. Uh, the moments where you get a mission, you go on a mission, of course, it's life-threatening and all that, and we just create music. But the adrenaline kick and the high performance level that you have to be in is exactly the same. And it was mind-blowing to both sides to share ideas of how we are able to do that and how we're not able to, after that, maybe, again, just cut a salad. And how can we use those qualities that we have? It's like, you know, like a tiger just before attacking the prey. Like, how can you be so productive in that second where you need to, but you can do other things in life? And that led us to understand what makes us so concentrated in that moment. What, how can we be so concentrated and so good? And we both realized that it's all about foundations and fundamentals. It's like, if you know how to breathe, if you know how to use your body, if you know the basics and you appreciate them in the moment, like they, they, one of them was a helicopter um, fighter. And he said that for him, it didn't matter. Like if he would think about what he did after the mission, he wouldn't believe what he did. But the mission for him was silence. Silence meaning that it's, it's all about I breathe. I take the helicopter up. I look at the point I need to get. I get there, 
I do what I do and I can't, and it's very quiet and it's very similar. When you play the Dvozha Concerto and your entrance come in after the orchestra, again, it's not life-threatening, but when that moment come, you basically think about inhale, exhale, gravitation points, and what you deliver is magical moment to 3,000 people. And people think, wow, no, all you think about is those fundamentals that make you productive. So I think all the performing um, professions, which, which are not, it's actually also running a radio show. I mean, when you have to produce something on the spot and you have 20 seconds, I'm sure that if we'll have coffee and talk about it, we will find that we do the same things in order to get to that moment and to produce in high level. It's, it's the same. It takes a lot of preparation, doesn't it, to be able to act in the moment, for sure. So much. Let's talk about this bubble that you created in Montana and the result, which is heard on this new recording. And it is the second movement to the Third Symphony by Johannes Brahms, the Andante, and it features eight cellos and piano. Tell me how this arrangement came to be and why you decided this was the right piece to perform in your bubble during the pandemic. So, how should I start? Well, I always like to do new things, as you can already see. And so when I um, created the bubble, I first contacted the parents of the students because this was pandemic time. And then all students, of course, wanted to go. And then I thought, okay, every day we'll have lessons and we'll have a pianist. But of course, in the evenings, I want all of us to um, be together and play music together. And in order to commemorate the moment, I wanted to record a piece that is, hasn't been played yet in that um, orchestration, in that group. And what I did is what I usually do when I want to get inspiration. I stopped thinking, I just went for a walk. And I, I, I forced myself not to think about a piece of music. And what came to my mind while walking is uh, this Brahms symphony, which I love. I mean, I'm also a conductor and I love, uh, Brahms for me is a favorite composer. And it came down to this symphony. I started listening, uh, hearing it in my mind. And then I went back from the walk and I put it on, on uh, my Spotify. And when I got to this movement, I, I could totally hear cello sound, group of cellos. I have a conductor friend who arranges um, a lot of music. And he has a friend, which is this guy on the CD, and he does a lot of work. He lives in Serbia, but you send him a score and boom, he uh, arranges it. So I asked him if I can use him for that. And I, he said, sure, and in the pandemic, he would love to get this extra little money. I got in touch with him. He sent me back after a few days, the arrangement, and he said, that was really easy. It fits for eight cellos and piano. However, I looked at it and I had some thoughts. And so I changed it a little bit and I asked him if it's okay. And um, then when we got to Montana, we rehearsed it every single day and we made a lot of changes to make it sound as close as possible to the symphony. 
and uh, we had the whole last day to record it. Um, being, I don't know if you've been in Montana, but being in the woods there, it's so beautiful and inspiring. And I have to tell you that by the eighth day, we played completely different than in the first day. And I'm so thankful that we brought along a, a professional engineer to record it. And we fell in love with this arrangement. And when I recorded the Bach Suites, the original plan was uh, to do only Uno, just me, to finish the cycle, which I started a few years ago with one, two, three, suites number one, two, three, to do four, five, six. But four and five were recorded. And when I came back from the bubble with the Brahms, I felt that this, this is exactly what I am now. This is exactly what I've done. I want to share that with the world. And not only that this is what came out, it made me decide that the next CD, which will conclude the cycle of the bass suite, uh, I want to do the sixth suite as is, cello solo, but to finish it with an arrangement of the sixth suite for eight cellos. So it will be on the same CD. Um, it will be the suite with cello solo. And then instead of doing Brahms or another piece, to play the six suites with eight cellos, with a cello gang, and to conclude the cycle. And I have to do it before I'm 50. So I have a few more years to sit on it, to leave it, to try it. But um, I want to look back and to see that this whole six suite cycle was a journey for me. And I want to be able to, you know, CDs these days are not for number one on the chart list. It's, it's really for you. I want it to be a statement and I want to be able to tell my kids or my grandchildren one day, you know, this is what happened and in 2020, we had this pandemic and this is what I did. This was my pandemic. It was a lot of Bach playing for myself in my studio at home, but it was also this bubble and this creation we did for ourselves where we could feel like pre-pandemic time as musicians. And this is all documented on this uh, CD. What was most memorable for the students who participated in this bubble experience? Did you get feedback directly from them about what that meant to them? Yeah, so uh, it's very interesting because the engineer, we uh, asked him to document the entire time. So he walked with a camera all, all around uh, the place. And he, he interviewed all of us, staff, myself, and students, after two days and then after eight, eight days at the end. And I feel that the most transformative part was the um, um, collaboration between music, artists, and nature. So uh, one of the things I try to teach them is that as a 21st century musician, you need to embrace yourself in the community you are. You cannot anymore just take a plane, play a concert, and move to the next city. You have to live somewhere, feel the community, and create for that community. I think that would be more and more the case. And being in Montana, seeing how quote-unquote nerd cellists who come from big cities all of a sudden are affected by nature and go for a hike at 7 a.m. with a cello to the top of the mountain and then play the first Bach suite at the top of the mountain. Or going to, um, there's a, a mountain of stones there, which is memorial for all the soldiers that passed away. And it's a tradition for the veterans to take a stone with them to do a hike at night with a stone, to get there, to put the stone in the mountain, to sing a Native American song uh, that they teach us there, and then to share a story about somebody that you lost. I've never done that before in my life. 
my students never, and, and we were so transformed by this experience with ex-commando uh, troops, American commando troops who, who are so emotional and doing that kind of hikes and trip and uh, Native American song and looking to the nature. All of that stuff, is, we can read about it or we can see it in movies, but for, for young cellists or for myself to do it and then to go down the mountain and to play that Brahms, that was the, the transformative change. And that's what I want them to take home. And for instance, one of them, Spanish student, graduated right after and went back to Spain. And he told me that that week was the most transformative week um, of his entire master degree at Johns Hopkins because it was something completely different, but it was complete integration with the place that you're creating. And that was, I, I hope this can be heard through the Brahms, but that for me is to be fully a 21st century musician. During the beginning of the pandemic, you were immersing yourself in the Bach cello suites, and in particular, number four and five. And really specific reasons came to you as you were doing that. Well, you know, we cellists, when we sit down in our studio and we're just alone day after day, we, we go to this suite. This is our Bible. This is where we get inspiration. And But from all six, the four and the five, I would say most controversial because you can play them in a way that at least 50% will dislike it and 50% like it. So I, to go into details, you can be in more historical performance way or more romantic way. And I have to say that it's something that in our generation is so scary that before you play a note, you want to make sure that you are uh, obeying all the rules. However, I felt for the first time a, a release of this kind of rules during the pandemic, I felt that I'm playing them for myself and I'm enjoying them as I, I did when I was a little child. Just playing, not um, thinking what does my teacher or what does the public or the presenter or the manager or the recording company, what do they think about it? Would they categorize me as a historic player? No, I played them for me and I felt uh, actually very romantic about it, but very romantic because of my, my feeling, my heart being involved in it. And number four for me, the E-flat major, is a grand suite. It's more uh, probably a symphonic suite for cello solo. And technically, it's the hardest one. It's so difficult because there are no overtones, uh, natural overtones on the cello. Um, E-flat major doesn't allow us to play the, the open strings that we have, the A, D, G, and C, where in other suites, they're part of the key. So you use them a lot and it rings naturally. E-flat major just doesn't ring, but it's so difficult. You feel like Bach is trying to say something that hasn't been said before, hasn't been done before. And a lot of cellists don't perform them because it's so difficult. They record it. Um, I felt that I have so much time now to just play that suite. And I felt to myself, okay, stop judging yourself. Just play it. And I played it every day until I fell in love with it. I, I played it as, as, as a song of love, I would say. And when the microphones were there, 
I treated it in that way. I said, I don't care if I'm playing it with vibrato, without vibrato, if I take time, God forbidden, when it doesn't say to take time, or if I play it faster or slower, I'm closing my eyes and I'm listening to myself and I play it. And luckily the recording engineer that I had for this recording, who is a six time Grammy recording winner, um, went with me and just pushed me in that direction even more than I thought I could. Maybe it's also age, and that leads me to why I play those, because I think four, five, and six, one has to have perspective of life and not just future in life. I felt that the first three, it's really like a child, teenager, and early 20s, maybe. It's something that you, it's like you're in love and you look forward. But four, five, six, four is this uh, macho. You say, I'm going to start my own company. I'm going to make money. I'm going to be the new whatever. That's number four. And you might fail, but that's the feeling. Number five is a religious one. It's the one that you say, okay, there is God, or okay, nature is stronger than me, or okay, there's afterlife, or there's something that is beyond us. And number six, I feel, is when you're 80 or 90 or 100 and you look back and you say, I had great life. I want to celebrate it and close my eyes. That's, that's how I feel number six. And for the first time in my playing life, I feel that I have perspective to look back. 25 years of running around the world performing, all of a sudden nature tells me, stop, enough, stay home, which was great, but you stop what you just did and then you start thinking so if you're 20 poor guys that study with me they had went through hell because they have nothing to look back and cherish it's just like everything stopped on the way forward but for me i felt god i can look back I, this was so beautiful this was great you know now i can look back i can cherish it now how do i move forward reading an interview with Yo-Yo Ma where he said, I think it was his 60th birthday, he said, all I want now is to play again and to feel like when I was a child and played the cello without any judgment. And I never understood it until the pandemic where you play, of course you think, of course you practice, you have your standard, but in a way you let go and you do it like when we were kids, you just play like we went outside to play with friends. That's how I want to play the cello now. And it's based on the past. So, And I felt that number four being this, okay, I'm going to prove to the world that I can do it. And then number five, I'm stepping into a temple, church, universe, whatever it is. And I look up and I see something greater than me. That's a C minor for me.
should probably have you remind us of the beautiful cello, the instrument that you use on this recording. Would you tell us a little bit about it, please? Yeah, so that's another pandemic story. (laughs) The instrument I'm using for this recording um, also helped me to feel more intact with myself because um, it's a cello that I received during the pandemic. It's a Grancino that was made in 1695. Um, Just before the pandemic, I had to return the Pablo Casals cello, which I used before, to the foundation after six years. And I got a call during the pandemic from one of my former students who is now a um, violin dealer in Boston. And he told me, Amit, I have this amazing cello here and we have no business now. It's just sitting in the shop in Boston. It's a beautiful, beautiful old 1695 Granchino. Would you like me to bring it to you so you can play because it's not played and it's not good for it? And of course he knew that I would fall in love with it, but I've tried so many great cellos in my life, including the Casals cello. And the moment I touched this cello, I felt that I'm bathing in an imaginary hot chocolate bath. I'm not kidding. Not that I've done it before, but (laughs) that's how I felt. And I I was in my studio down in the basement and I went upstairs. It was during, um, it was around 2 p.m. I remember my wife, she's German. It was Schlafstunde. She took a a Mittag Schlafen and I gave a lesson, a Zoom lesson. So I went upstairs and I told Julia, my wife, Julia, sorry, I wake you up, but you have to listen. And I sat on the, the corner of the bed and I played a few notes and, and she couldn't believe it. And I went down to the guy who brought the cello and I said, wow, this is it. And of course he had a smile on his face because he did his job even during the pandemic. But the problem was that I couldn't, of course, and I can't, and I will never be able to afford it. But I decided again, maybe it's the perspective of just being home with the family. I said to myself, okay, I'm going to ask for a loan and I, I want to buy it. I don't want to ask for favors anymore and have foundations and so on. And I asked the bank, they said, no, no way, you have a mortgage. And I asked two people that I know that could possibly lend me the money, uh, like 400 years without interest, and I can leave it for my kids to deal with. And one of them said no, and the other couple, not they didn't say yes, but they said, we're going to buy it for you. And the only condition would be that whenever we want you to come to our house, or I should say houses, um, you have to come and play for us. And I gladly accepted. So they didn't lend me the money. They just bought it. They bought Choco. And uh, I played, uh, yeah, it became my cello. And actually yesterday in the cello game concert in Virginia, they came to the concert. They saw me and Choco. And uh, this, along with the pieces and the bubble, and everything that happened to me in the pandemic um, is Solus et Una. But you call it, you have a name oh, for it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I call it Shoko because Shoko, S-H-O-K-O, Shoko in Hebrew means hot chocolate. So the nickname of this cello is hot chocolate in Hebrew, Shoko. <laughs> Wonderful. So, because you wrote a book about the Casals cello and you yeah. narrated it for us. So you don't have that instrument yeah. anymore. I don't have this cello anymore, no. So someone and, else is you, has use of it or? Well, actually, no. No, the, the cello is with the uh, widow of Pablo Casals now at the house. And um, she uh, wanted it back. The foundation wanted it back actually after one year, but it was six and during the pandemic, I gave it back to them. And uh, just last December, I took it back for a week and I made a video on it. 
um, with an interview with Mrs. Casals, which was very emotional. But I have to say that now having the Granchino, having Choco, that I finally feel that I found a suit that fits me perfectly. Where the Casals cello was a great suit, but not my size. And I'm so happy that I had this opportunity to grow with the cello. But having a cello now that really fits me, that actually also led me to feel so comfortable playing those slate suites by Bach. Um, is finding that voice that fits me. And um, it's even an older cello than the Casals cello. Uh, hard to believe, but my cello now, the Granchino, Choco, was 25 years old when Bach wrote those suites. Um, hard to believe, yes. So um, I think, yeah, I, I'm just continuing the journey. When I recorded the first three suites and narrated the children book, uh, I used the Casals cello and I felt great with it, but I did not record the last three. I did not feel uh, emotionally, but also cellistically, I did not feel ready to embark on four, five, and six, which I do feel now. And uh, I, I, I don't want to give one reason for it, but it's definitely all of, all of the above, all of what we've talked about. Solo Saduna. It's a new recording with cellist Amit Pellad. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer. This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julie Almacher.